Hello, welcome to episode 15 of 10-0, where true crime meets the paranormal. I'm Maria. And I'm Caitlin. So how are we doing? Fantastic. So I checked our analytics for our podcast. Yeah. And I just want to say thank you to each and every one of you, especially those of you that are not stateside and listening. They're super Um, cool. We love you. (laughs) It's extremely exciting that we're reaching places like India and South Africa and the UK. Oh, I was excited about France. Are you kidding me? I know. (laughs) I I was getting there. I was getting there. Um, We have listeners in Germany, Australia, Canada, South Africa, France, India, and the UK. That is insane. You guys are awesome. We love you. (laughs) And it is insanely awesome that you guys are sticking it out and hanging out with us during our first 15 episodes. We love you. We appreciate you so much. So Maria's going to start us off with our true crime fact of the day, as per usual. And then we're going to go into the paranormal side of things. Because we've got something really big for you guys, and it, it, it's going to be a little bit longer than my story. So, <laughs> so she's, so she's going to make me go second. So, so I'm going to go first. <laughs> okay, so our true crime fact of the day is August 20th of 1989 in Beverly Hills, California. Lyle and Eric Menendez shot and killed both of their parents. Ooh, I remember Today, that. In 1989. The, the sad thing is, like, I remember that getting a lot of, like, media attention, even after I was born. Like, I was born in 1990, and it it had a lot of media attention. I wasn't. I don't even think my parents were married yet, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> Shut up. <laughs> so, Eric's therapist taped the session, because Eric was a new client for him. And instead of taking the tapes to the authorities... He kept the tapes in an attempt to impress his mistress. However, the mistress went to the police with the information that she had learned from the therapist. In March of 1990, both Lyle and Eric were arrested. And for the next three years, the courts fought over whether the tapes were admissible in court. In the summer of 1993, the California Supreme Court determined that it could be played and that the trial started soon after. The brother's testimony lasted over a month, citing the sexual abuse the boy sustained from their father. They insisted that the shootings were in self-defense. They had two juries, one for each brother, and they were both deadlocked, and a mistrial was called. Of course it was. Right. In 1995, there was a retrial. The judge was more restrictive on what was allowed as far as the abuse allegations. And in March of 1996, both brothers were convicted and sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. I was fucking crazy. I was six when that um, all went down. I was three. When so, they went to jail. just because I was so young, I didn't really understand. But my parents watched the news and everything. So it's weird looking back on all these like things that happened in the past. Right. You wanted to go first. All right. So we're going to jump into a haunting. Um, not really sure how true all of it is, as there's a lot of speculation around this case. Um, but we're going to go to West Pittston, Pennsylvania. Pittston, Pennsylvania. Um, and we're going to talk about the Smurl family. Um, okay. So the Smurl haunting refers to claims that were made by Jack and Janet Smurl of 
Pennsylvania. They were redoing a house in another town and were forced to move to a double block house on Chase Street in West Pittston. It was a bit of a fixer-upper, and they put in efforts to, like, repaint, retool, repair, fix up the house. And it was at this time, in 1974, that all of the creepy activity started. Fantastic. Yeah. So odd things happened at first, like the television got destroyed, water pipes got destroyed, um, certain portions of the house that they had renovated had gotten destroyed. The family had no explanation for it. Okay. Um, Initially, the episodes were benign. However, like, tools would go missing um, and then reappear. Um, Yes. Like, the stains that were on the walls that they painted over Mm -hmm. would seep back through the paint. Oh. Um, One night, the kitchen appliances caught fire, even though they were unplugged. (laughs) No. (laughs) (laughs) Um... Awful odors overwhelmed the house, only to disperse, like, moments later. So you'd get, like, this whiff of a foul smell, and then two seconds later, it'd be gone. Over the period of 13 years, so between 1974 and 1989, they were tormented by the ghosts in that house. They claimed that the premises was disturbed by a demon that caused loud noises and bad odors, threw their dog into a wall, Mm -hmm. shook their mattresses, Pushed one of their daughters down a flight of stairs. The fuck? And here, here, here's the kicker. Janet also believed that she was molested in her sleep by a demon. Oh, Jesus fuck. And Jack later said that he was sexually attacked by an unknown force as he was watching a baseball game on TV. But the most Hmm. horrifying attack on the family was when a heavy, because back then everything was heavy, um, ceiling light almost fell on one of the young daughters, missing her by inches and cutting her after it fell. No, that's not okay. Yeah. So, in 1986, the family brought in Ed and Lorraine Warren. There it is. According to Ed, the demon that inhabited the home was very powerful and it shook mirrors and furniture after they tried to persuade it to leave by playing religious music and praying. Because that's what they did back then. And Lorraine thought that they could, you know, fix everything with praise and... The power of Christ compels you. <laughs> it's not where I was going with I'm that, an asshole. but okay. It's fine. <laughs> Continue. Um, Ed claimed that he felt a drop in temperature and saw a dark mass form in the home. And the demon once left a message on a mirror telling him to get out. Mm-mm. Ed and Lorraine both identified four ghosts on the property. A harmless old lady, a violent young girl, a man who had died in the home, and a demon who controlled the other three spirits. Fantastic. After months of investigation, Warren alleged that he had a number of audio tapes containing knocking and rapping caused by the demon, but I couldn't find any of them. Like, there was no actual evidence that they existed. Group prayer sessions and exorcisms were conducted, but the attacks continued. Okay. So the Smurls took their story public in hopes that someone might hear of what was going on and know how to help. 
The family got more than they bargained for, and the press latched on like a malicious spirit and refused to leave. Of course they did. That's how it works. So, Paul Kurtz was a professor at the State University of New York in Buffalo, and then chairman of the Committee for the Scientific Investigation of Claims of the Paranormal, and said that Ed Warren's claims weren't objective, independent, or impartial, and said the same about them as investigators. Oh. Characterized the family's claims as a hoax and a ghost story. That's kind of rude. Kurtz also said that the family's claims were possibly due to delusions, hallucinations, or brain impairment, and advised that they submit themselves to a psychiatric examination. Because all of them have the same psychiatric issue that's presenting itself the exact same way. So, looking back at other info, of course I'd forget his name. Jack. How can I forget Jack? Damn. <laughs> Anyways. <laughs> So, Jack actually had surgery when he was younger to remove water on his brain. Okay. So, that one could be possible. That doesn't explain everybody else in the house. But it does not explain everybody else in the house. A psychologist had commented saying that people often look at demonology to explain many things that they experience as individuals and within their families. So... Basically, no one outside of the home and the Warrens were taking this seriously. So, the Smurls family told the press that they were extremely tired of the media bombardment. However, shortly after, they came out with a paperback book. Of course it did. That the Warrens helped them with. So, the Warrens wrote it. So, here, here's the thing. A lot of people don't know this about Ed and Lorraine Warren. But... Almost every single investigation they did became a book. Mm -hmm. And they got, I believe, 50% of whatever they made. They made. So the family would get 50% and they would get 50% of the royalties. I mean, that's great that they get the family money for it. But But at the same time, that's kind of bullshit. You're profiting off somebody else's pain. Exactly. (laughs) Um, So... In later episodes, you'll hear me talk again about the Warrens, and you'll you'll notice the disdain in my voice every time I bring them up, just because of that fact. So their paperback book was called The Haunted, and that same year that it was produced, Reverend Joseph, mm-hmm. I, I don't want to butcher that last name, <laughs> Adonisio, sure, that worked. said the Smurls le- felt that after intense prayers, things were back to normal. But they weren't. Well. In early 1987, the family moved again. Okay. But the supernatural phenomenon reportedly followed them to There's their new fucking home. spider coming down. What? <laughs> Land. That way I can smush you. Please? You're welcome. I have to be able to see you, though. I can't see it. I don't know where it went. I don't know where it went.
bullshit. Um, okay, so if you hear me scream like a little girl, it's because of a spider. Um, I have an irrational fear. I see that. Of small spiders. <laughs> like, I've owned tarantulas. I am just, like, terrified of, like, the tiny ones. Because you can't see when they're going to attack you. So, yeah. I'm a wuss. I, I see so, that. So, there's that. <laughs> um, anyways. <laughs> Back to the story. Um, so, the phenomena happened at their new home. Until a church-sanctioned exorcism happened in 1989. And cleared the house of its activity. Since then, um, like the media, experts, priests, journalists, they've all scrutinized the story. I believe that. So that's why in the beginning I said, eh, it might be true, it might be not. Might be not. <laughs> it might be not. <laughs> I'm going to need you to not freak out over the little teeny tiny baby spider. <laughs> Deborah Owens moved into the former small... Smurl home in 1988 and told reporters she never encountered anything supernatural while living there. Possible, I suppose. I it, mean. it could be. I mean, you see cases like that all the time where you... It could have followed the family. Exactly. If it even happened. I mean, right. We don't know if it actually that. happened. My, my thing is, with the warrants being involved, things could have been extremely exaggerated. We will never fully know for sure what actually happened because those tapes aren't there. Right. And even if they were, there's no way to prove that it's just somebody knocking on a wall. Right. There's no video. There's no video proof because back then they had cameras, but how, how much were they? They were expensive. easily too expensive for... These right. people to go out and just buy a video camera and set it up in their home like we can now. Tape recorders, on the other hand. Yes. But even those could be faked. Because yeah, you could exactly. have someone press the record button after it being set down and them still be in the room and make the noise. Okay. You ready for a doozy? Absolutely. Ready for 12 pages of notes? <laughs> yes. Hence why I said we were for something big and I was going first. <laughs> <laughs> but next week's episode is going to be that way for me. So I wanted to do this one for a while. Um, okay. So Dennis Lynn Raider was born March 9th of 1945 in Columbus, Kansas. I know who it is. I just said Dennis Lynn Raider. Yeah. But not very many people know what his alias was. True. His parents were Dorothea May and William Elvin Raider. He was one of four boys. They grew up in Wichita, Kansas. Both of his parents worked long hours and paid very little attention to the children when they were home. And Dennis later described feeling ignored by his mother in particular and resenting his work. Harbored sadistic sexual fantasies about torturing, quote, trapped and helpless women. He <laughs> acted out sexual fantasies, <laughs> sexual fetishes for voyeurism, autoerotic asphyxiation. <laughs> Together! 
and cross-dressing. He would often spy on female neighbors while dressed in women's clothing, including women's underwear that he had stolen from his mother. Ooh. He wore mommy's underwear. <sighs> well, I mean, Norman Bates did the same thing. It doesn't make it okay. I know, but, <laughs> you know. Makes it less than okay. I, I, mm -mm. At least tell me they were new. Oh, I would hope so. So in his later years, I guess, Raider attended Kansas Wesleyan University after high school, but received mediocre grades and dropped out. He served in the Air Force from 1966 to 1970. After his discharge, he moved to Park City, where he worked in the meat department of the local IGA. Mother was a bookkeeper. <laughs> we have those. IGA? Yeah. I don't think I've ever been to an IGA. Oh my god. I go to one at least once a week. Remington has one. Crowler has one. one. I've never seen an IGA before. I'm pretty sure Chalmers even has one. I don't know what that is. It's a really, really small town by Monticello. And? <laughs> <laughs> Just saying! <laughs> Your point? <laughs> <laughs> they have their own exit on 65. <laughs> the Wolcott Chalmers exit. Sure. You don't go south very often? Not unless I'm on 65 and I'm probably asleep by the time I hit that exit. Yeah, good point. So <laughs> <laughs> uh, May 22nd of 1971, Dennis married Paula Dietz. And they had two children together, Carrie and Brian. Dennis later attended... Butler County Community College in El Dorado, earning his associate's degree in electronics in 1973. He then attended Wichita State University and graduated in 1979 with a Bachelor of Science, majoring in Administration of Justice. Ironic. Uh-huh. Fucking ironic. Yeah. He initially worked as an assembler for the Coleman Company. And in 1974, he started with ADT, Installing security alarms. <laughs> yeah, that ended in 1988. <laughs> well. In May of 1991, he became a dog catcher and compliance officer in Park City. In this position, neighbors recalled him being overzealous and extremely strict. He was a member of the Christ Lutheran Church and had been elected president of the church council. And he was the Cub Scout leader for his son. Oh. So he modeled himself as an actual upstanding citizen, but he was, in fact, a piece of shit. All of that stuff sounds fantastic, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> and now we get to the shit. Yay. So now we're going to get into the murders that he wonderfully Yay. committed. Everyone likes a good murder. I suppose as long as it's not me. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, we like the stories behind them. Yes. <laughs> yes. So we're going to start with the Otero family. This happened on January 15th of 1974 at 1834 Edgemore Street in Wichita, Kansas. He counted this as his first, quote, fantasy killing. Mm -hmm. Dennis entered through the back door of the home and cut the phone lines, which ended up being some a trademark of his. He always cut the phone line. He confronted the family and pulled a pistol from his coat pocket. Dennis said that the dog was going to be a problem and asked Mr. Otero to take it outside. 
and Mr. Otero had one of the kids let it outside. After this, Dennis took all four family members to the bedroom where he tied them up. Mr. Otero was in visible pain from their restraints, so Dennis gave him a pillow to lay on. If you're going to kill somebody, why are you making them comfortable? That's something I noticed researching. At least he, like, he talked to people and made them comfortable and then decided to kill them. He was showing empathy, which not very many serial killers do. I don't understand it. Like, um, why? What's the point? Because he thought by doing it, it was making him more human and less of a pile of shit. Less of a pile of shit. Love it. <laughs> well, I mean, I can only say garbage human so many times in an episode, okay? You can say okay? garbage human as many times as you fucking want. <laughs> Says 147 most... <laughs> decals that we weeded. <laughs> that are still sitting on my kitchen I, I table. Think, I think the, uh, I still need mine, by the way. I never took mine out of there. Um, But I think the uh, biggest thing was trying to get past saying it nine times in an episode. So, I have a goal. Oh, yeah. That was our record, wasn't it? Yes. Anywho, Dennis was stupid and didn't wear a mask. So, they automatically could identify him if they needed to. Right. Uh, He only realized this after he had tied up the family. And he decided at that point that they all were going to die. He then put a bag over Mr. Otero's head in an attempt to suffocate him. This was unsuccessful. Right. He managed to poke a hole in the bag somehow. He then, Dennis then covered Mr. Otero's head with a t-shirt and then another bag. And this resulted in the death of Mr. Otero. While he was dying, Dennis strangled Mrs. Otero. However, she did not die immediately. Dennis had to strangle her a second time with a rope. For that to actually be successful. So, watching the shows that I have watched, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> to, to <laughs> strangle somebody with your bare hands, force. it takes a lot of force. You basically have to crush their trachea with your hands to make it successful. Right. So you almost always have to use another means. That's a Which, lot of force if you're going to do that by hand. For legal reasons, I have not done any research <laughs> on that. <laughs> Just saying. That is all strictly from my crime shows and... Oh my god. Like Do not come for me. <laughs> oh, that was great. For legal reasons, I'm not planning any more. <laughs> Shit, I'm crying. I'm actually crying right now. Well, I mean, you never know. <laughs> Is there something you're trying to tell me? Do I need to pause? <laughs> no. no, I know way, shape, or form. Oh my god. Planning anyone's murder. It's just Ugh. one of those weird facts that gets like stuck in your head after a while. That was great. <laughs> oh my god, that was beautiful. <laughs> anyway, then Dennis killed a child. He moved on to Joseph Jr. He put a bag and a t-shirt over his head, just like his father. And this worked the first time. And then he went to the last member of the family, Josephine. He hung her from a pipe in the basement. After the entire family was dead, Tennis, Tennis, (laughs) Dennis took the keys to the car and Mr. Otero's watch and a radio from the house. He drove the car to a neighbor's house and left it there. Hopefully, he was smart enough to wipe it down for fingerprints. But, you know, 
people are stupid. Oh, just wait. He gets real fucking dumb later. Well, I know, but we don't fucking dumb. So now we're on to Catherine Bright. This was April 4th of 1974. Dennis broke into her home from the back door and waited for her to return home. She did not return home alone. She was with her brother, Kevin. Dennis demanded that Kevin tie up Catherine, and then he proceeded to tie up Kevin. Dennis moved Catherine to another room away from Kevin. He then came back to Kevin, and the two proceeded to fight. Kevin was able to break free of his bonds and fight with Dennis. Um, Dennis then pulled out a gun and shot Kevin in the head. Thinking that he was dead, Dennis returned to Catherine and attempted to strangle her. She was also able to break free from her bonds and starts fighting him as well. And then Dennis heard sounds from the other room. Upon checking, Kevin was not dead. He and Dennis then fought for the second gun that Dennis was carrying. He had like a a shoulder holster Mm -hmm. and had a gun in each of them. Dennis was able to get control of the gun and then shot Kevin again. He returned to Catherine again and finished the job. She fought back, but he was was unsuccessful in strangling her the second time, so he stabbed her three times in the stomach. However, after all this, in being shot in the head twice, Kevin was able to get away from the fucking scene, but somehow wasn't able to identify. Well, I mean, he probably had brain damage at some point. True. I mean, Depending on like, where he was shot. I think it was like his lip and on his forehead somewhere, I think, if I remember correctly. So... Depending on the angle, he could have suffered brain damage. True. So. Next, we are on to Shirley Bean Byan Relford. This was March 17th of 1977. Why would you kill somebody on a holiday? Especially one where you're supposed to be drunk. What day was it? St. Patrick's Day. Oh. Well, shit. I don't know. I'd be I'd be too busy, you know, getting shit-paced. <laughs> Uh, Dennis noted that this killing was completely random, whereas the rest of them were absolutely planned. He called his killings projects, and he would stalk people to the point where he felt like he knew everything about them. Um, Dennis followed a little boy home that was walking. He then went to the front door of that home and knocked and pushed his way in when someone answered the door. There he met Shirley. She was in her robe. And he explained to her that he had sexual fantasies and that if everyone in the residence cooperated, no one would get hurt. Oh. Yeah. Very direct. Yeah. Which I can appreciate, but not in this case. He tied the kids up and put them in Shirley's bedroom. Obviously, they were scared and started crying. Right. He decided that this was not going to work, so he moved them with Shirley's help to the bathroom. He gave the kids toys and blankets and then tied them up in the bathroom. <laughs> like, tied the door shut. Okay. As long as he wasn't binding them after, you know, giving them toys and right. blankets. After the kids were tied up in the bathroom, Dennis took Shirley back to her room. He tied her up and she promptly vomited all over him. Good for you. I wish I could vomit on command. Right. I mean, I'm sure it was stress, but I'm at sure. the same time. Dennis was nice enough to get her a glass of water. And then placed a bag over her head and strangled her with a rope. See, there's that empathy again. Right. Every single case has some kind of empathy. And it's fucking weird to me. It's like, what's the point? 
Like, you knew that, well, not with her, but you know you're going to kill a person. Why right. are you being nice to them? I mean. Maybe to make their last moments pleasurable, I can't I guess? pretend to I, understand I, I don't what goes through his head. But I went know. through his head. Did he? He's still in prison, isn't he? I don't think he's dead. Kind of damn it. Making me use Google in the middle of an episode. Sorry. <laughs> anyway, next was Nancy Fox. This happened on December 8th in 1977. He arrived at the residence before Nancy, and he went around back to the phone lines just with everybody else, and then broke into her apartment and waited for her in the kitchen. He is not dead. He is currently 76 years old and still in prison. I hope he dies a painful death. I'm surprised he hasn't died yet. Prison justice and all that. Well, he's um, probably in segregation. He's probably by himself. Probably. <clears throat> when Nancy came home, Dennis confronted her in the kitchen. He again told her that he had sexual problems when he needed to have sex with her. Obviously, this upset her. And he took her into the living room to talk it out with her. When she then said to Dennis, quote, let's get this over with so I can call the police. Yeah, probably not the best thing to say. At least she was as direct with him as he was with her. Yeah. I mean, if I'm looking at someone who's going to kill me in the face, the last thing I'm going to do is be like, let's just get this over with so I can call the cops. No. Mm -mm. I'm probably going to be like crying hysterically and begging for my life. But he permitted her to go to the bathroom and she was told to come out undressed. He then handcuffed her and had her lay on the bed. He then strangled Nancy with his belt. After he felt that she was gone, he removed the belt, but then replaced it with a pair of pantyhose tied around her neck. That's a little... Overdone? Yeah. Yeah, that's what I thought, too. So now, stop looking for the goddamn spider! (laughs) Sorry! I felt something on my leg, and I'm like, oh, God! (laughs) I can't. Oh, God. Sorry, guys. I just, like, yelled in your ears. (laughs) Okay, Uh, next is Maureen Hedge. This was April 27th of 1985. Dennis parked at the bowling alley in Park City. He then took a taxi close to her residence. He then told the taxi to stop because he, quote, needed some fresh air. When he got to the residence, he he noted that her vehicle was there, but she was not supposed to be home. When Dennis snuck around in the house... He noticed that she was not there. At this point, the door opened and Marine entered with a male visitor. After an hour or two, that male visitor left. And Dennis was hiding in the bedroom the entire time. Oh. So he watched. Whatever just happened. Yeah. Nope. Yeah. In the I, early... never, I never really understood. <laughs> in the early hours of the morning, Dennis turned on the lights in the bedroom obviously scared her she screamed as jumped on top of her and manually strangled her again mucho hand strength yeah <clears throat> dennis determined that she was dead and then he stripped her of her clothing tied her up regardless of her being dead he then put her body in the trunk of her vehicle and drove her to the christ lutheran church this is where he's the president oh yeah 
He then takes her body inside the church and takes Polaroids of her in bondage inside the church. Oh. Yeah. Never really fully understood that either. Like, why take pictures of your victims after they're already dead? In a fucking church. Like, I'm not religious in any way, shape, or form. In a fucking church. Right. Come on. When he was finished, he put her body back into the vehicle and drove to find out. He ended up choosing a ditch and placed her body in a low ditch covered with trees. Okay. On to our second to last victim was Vicky Wigurl. That's how I'm going to say that. September 16th of 1986, Dennis disguised himself as a telephone repairman to get inside her house. She let him in, no problem. And he pretended to look over her phone. At this point, Dennis pulled a pistol from his pocket and pointed it at Vicky. He asked her if she would go to the bedroom with him. Asked her. Does that mean I have the option to say no? (laughs) (laughs) With a pistol pointed at you? Probably not. Well, there's that. Uh, He then walked Vicky to her room and proceeded to tie her up. She was able to break free from these restraints and begin to fight him. Dennis was able to get a stocking around Vicky's neck and strangled her. However, he did not complete the strangulation. Vicky's husband came home and spooked him. He snuck out of the house as her husband was coming in. Vicky's husband found her and called the paramedics who were unsuccessful in attempting to revive her. So she did end up dying from her strangulation. Oh. Our last one is Dolores Davis. This happened on January 19th of 1991. Dennis broke into Dolores' home while she was there. He picked up a concrete block and threw it through the window and just let himself in. He used the ruse that he was wanted and just wanted her keys and some food. He handcuffed Dolores and went to see where her car was and pretended that he was gathering things from the home. He came back and removed the handcuffs after reassuring her that she would not be harmed, and then he strangled her with a pair of pantyhose. So you're going to tell me you're not going to hurt me, but then you're going to strangle me immediately after. Right. At least give me, like, some sense of hope, like, give me, like, a couple minutes, and then... Do what you gotta do. Do what you gotta do. So, Dum Dum sent letters to TV stations. Yeah. And police departments. He was known for sending these letters and taunting the police and newspapers. And between 1974 and 1979, several letters... Get it together. I can't. (laughs) (laughs) Several letters were exchanged between law enforcement and Dennis. The first one had been hidden in an engineering book in the Wichita Public Library in October 1974. This letter described the Otero murders in detail. In 1978, Dennis sent another letter to KAKE-TV in Wichita. In one letter, this this is (laughs) dumbass. In one letter, Dennis asked if a floppy disk could be traced. Why would you send a fucking floppy disk to anybody? I mean, back then... I'm Why sure it was imprinted it? with something, but at the same time... Well, he was told no, but it was in fact possible. On the disc, investigators found a Word document written by someone named Dennis and a link to the Christ Lutheran Church 
Oh. A short Google later, and the police had their man. Fucking idiot. Like I said, <laughs> fucking dumbass. All I can think of is red foreman. <laughs> dumbass. So, this is a letter from 1978 with grammatical errors and all, so it's going to sound fucky, and I apologize. However, this is how he wrote it. I find the newspaper not writing about the poem on vain unamusing. A little paragraph would have enough. I know it not the media fault. The police chief, he keep things quiet and doesn't let the public know they're a psycho running around loose strangling mostly women. There are seven in the ground. Who will be next? How many do I have to kill before I get a name in the paper or some national attention? Do the cop think all those deaths are not related? Golly gee. Yes, the MO is different in each, but look, a pattern is developing. The victims are tie up. Most have been women. Phone cut. Bring some bondage. Mater sadist tendencies. I'm assuming that was supposed to be major. No struggle outside the death spot. No witness except the Vane's kids. They were very lucky. A phone call saved them. I was going to tape the boys with plastic bags over their head like I did Joseph and Shirley and then hang the girl. God, oh God, what a beautiful sexual relief that would have been. Josephine, when I hung her, really turned me on. Her pleading for mercy when the rope took hold, she helpless, staring at me with wide, terror-filled eyes, the ropes getting tighter and tighter. You don't understand these feelings because you're not under the influence of Factor X. Factor X is what he called his urge to kill and right. do nasty, sadistic things to people. Yeah, garbage human. <clears throat> Same thing that made Son of Sam, Jack the Ripper, Havery Flatman, Boston Strangler, and Dr. H.H. H. Holmes, Pantyhose Strangler, Florida, Hillside Strangler, Ted of the West Coast, and many more infamous character killed. Which seems senseless, but we cannot help it. There is no help, no cure, except death or being caught and put away. It is a nightmare, but you see, I don't lose any sleep over it. After a thing like Fox, I come home and go about life like anyone else. And I will be like that until the urge hit me again. It not continuous, and I don't have a lot of time. I take time to set a kill, one mistake, and it all over. Since I about blew it on the phone, hand, handwriting it out, letter guide is too long, and typewriter can be traced too. My short poem of death and maybe a drawing later on real picture and maybe a tape of the sound will come your way. How will you know me? Before a murder or murders, you will receive a copy of the initials BTK. Who keep that copy, the original, will show up someday on guess who? Maybe you will not be the unlucky one. P.S. How about some name for me? It's time. Seven down and many more to go. I like the following. How about you? The BTK Strangler, Wichita Strangler, Poetic Strangler, the Bond Age Strangler, I'm assuming that's supposed to be bondage, or the Psycho, the Wichita Hangman, the Wichita Executioner, the Garrett Phantom, and the Asphyxiator, BTK. <sighs> you know, you went to college. That well... was hard. <laughs> to read like how he wrote it just because you go to college it doesn't make you smart that was harder no offense to anybody harder i know people who have went to harvard 
and they can't spell simple words. So yeah, well, there's that. I mean, it it happened. That and the dude's freaking old. Oh, now he's old. But back then he was what in his thirties or forties? Yeah, ish. So for his arrest. The floppy disk package was mailed to KAS in Wichita on February 16th in 2005. Soon after all the data was recovered from the floppy disk, police obtained a search warrant for the medical records of Carrie, that was his daughter. Her DNA was a familial match to the semen found at an early BTK crime scene. In 2005, Jesus Christ. I, I apologize. I don't know what's wrong with me. February 25th of 2005, Dennis was stopped while driving near his home and taken into custody. While he was taken into custody, Wichita PD, two SWAT trucks, KBI, FBI, and ATF stormed his house and performed a search warrant. After his arrest, Dennis talked to the police for several hours. He stated he chose to resurface in 2004 because he wanted to tell his story his own way. He also stated that he was bored now that his children were grown up. So you decided to start killing people again. Okay. Because you were bored. Yeah. February. <sighs> That's a lot to unpack. Yeah. February 26th of 2005, Dennis is formally charged with the murders. So Kansas reinstated their death penalty in 1994. Because the last known BTK killing was in 1991, he was unfortunately ineligible for the death penalty. February 28th of 2005, he was formally charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. He was actually represented by a public defender, first off. Take a stab at what his bail was. Less than Chris Watts. More. More? Mm -hmm. Oh, okay. Take a stab at what his bond was. Hmm. Half a million. More. Way more. A million? 10 million. Oh. Big kid bond. (laughs) Well, I mean, I don't really remember much from then because that was when I was in high school and I was a bad kid. So. Let's see, 2005. I was 12. I was a freshman in high school. And my big brother was, you know, in college. So. June 27th of 2005 was his scheduled trial date. He pled guilty and gave a full, detailed account of each murder. In August 18th of 2005, he was sentenced to 10 consecutive life terms with no possibility of parole. Good. That's one of the better endings to serial killers that we have. For once, Jesus. For once in our lives. Right. Well, we hope you enjoyed the... um, unpacking of btk yeah <laughs> yeah that was a, that's a lot to unpack for one garbage human i warned you it was a doozy absolutely yeah that was a big one Schnikes. next week's probably gonna rival that so well this one's definitely gonna be a long one next week's probably will be too but i'm done with that we'll, we'll get there when we get there I, yep. i'm not giving any hints or anything <laughs> Not on this one. Like, I'm going to make you guess. Oh, God. 
granted, you know, you guys know the title when it's released, but I don't know what we're recording. Uh, <laughs> but and that she, makes me freaking she nervous. Has no idea. So, well, you but, can yeah. follow us on Instagram at 10zero-podcast. Yes. You can find us on Facebook at 10zero true crime and paranormal stories from behind the headset. I finally remembered it. Yay! <laughs> See, she's the one who remembers all this stuff because I I don't even pay attention half the time. It's fine. It's fine. I got this. I'm <laughs> the one that doesn't have kids. I got this. Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, our website to our store where you can buy decals, one of which is limited edition, so you might want to get your hands on that, is in our bio on Instagram, Facebook, and for the podcast on our podcast website. Um, if you have any listener stories or cases for us that you want to hear, you can send them to our email at 10 podcast at gmail.com. Did I get everything? I think so. I think I did. Okay. Well, we will see you next week. Bye. Okay, bye. Stay safe. And don't become the next 10-0.